Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the latest of the Rathbones Look Forward series. Over the next few months, we're speaking to some great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. In our latest episode, my guest is writer, broadcaster and environmentalist Lucy Siegel. She's going to talk about the future of our planet, the impact of the fashion industry on the environment and the true cost of our consumer addictions. Lucy founded the Observer Newspaper's Ethical Awards and her latest book is Turning the Tide on Plastic, How Humanity and You Can Make Our Globe Clean Again. You might also know her as a regular guest on the BBC's One Show. Lucy, a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Oh, no, it's an honour. Let's let's go back a little bit mm-hmm. to talk about the whole idea of the environmental correspondent. Because when I started out in television, the environmental correspondent was, how shall I put this politely, quite niche. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was not a mainstream position, you know? It was sort of somebody that didn't get on air that often and was often talking about things that a lot of other people thought were well, quite sort of, well, not relevant to them, let's put it yes. that way. Yes, It's changed hugely, but how did, how did it start for you and, and how did you get into it? Well, I think it's probably still quite niche in a way. <laughs> I feel quite niche. <laughs> um, well, for me, it was completely accidental. So for me, it was that I happened to start working on a newspaper, mm-hmm. on the Observer newspaper. And I, in my spare time, was on a mission to rebrand at the time. This sounds incredibly conceited and ridiculous several years on. I was on a mission to rebrand Green Living, um, because I um, had grown up in and around Totnes and Dartington in Devon, which had a very deep ecology movement, which, to be completely frank, I didn't like very much. But you did know about ecology. You grew up in a, I grew an up ecological ecology environment. From a, different, from a different way, really, because mm. my grandfather happened to be an amateur ecologist, which was quite strange. <laughs> Go on, tell me what that means. <laughs> well, he was really... So he wasn't a, a professional scientist. Right. But he did work for Shell Oil as a scientific translator. So he worked for an oil company. He grew... You know, he was from Liverpool... Uh, from the inner city. He grew up living in the suburbs around Liverpool, Chester, Northwest. So he wasn't out in, in a rural place where you, you know, communed with nature. Mm-hmm. And yet he had these incredibly ecological values. So for starters, I remember in the 1980s being obsessed with different plastic, this, that and the other, you know, like uh, there were film franchises and little dolls and all sorts of stuff and I remember my friends went to Disneyland and they came back with this monstrous kind of Mickey Mouse cup with all straws and blah 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 and I probably had a hat and earphones I had a whole thing anyway he said to me this is ridiculous this is a ridiculous use of plastic and I always remember him wow really railing against this plastic stuff Back in the 1980s, though, yeah, that was yeah, really out yeah. there. And it was really Other people out there. were not thinking that no. plastic was a problem. No, it was very strange. And he used to do things.
things like he used to unwrap um, his shopping at the supermarket, which I used to find so mortifying. <laughs> the whole thing. And he always had string bags. He would never take plastic carrier bags. He was way ahead of his time. And in a suburban environment, this was very odd. But he had always taught me that plastic was uh, oil-based and oil was a very precious resource. And he hated to see the damage that it was causing. He was also really into wildlife and stuff like that. So I kind of got this these kind of strange values from him. So I, you know, then when I came to a really kind of deep green environment, I found it very closed off and I felt it was very purist and holier than thou. And at the time, I was much younger. I thought, why can't we make this kind of young and cool? So that was why I wanted to start writing about the environment. I wanted to bring it to a different audience. So it's almost like you were ahead of your time as well, Lucy. Actually. I certainly was because no one took any notice of me. So I was, t- <laughs> I was totally so ahead of your time, in so fact. That I didn't make any sense to anybody. And I wrote a book called Green Living in the Urban Jungle, which was a sort of catastrophic mishmash of how to do this, how to do that. And just looking at lots of different uh, parts of people's lifestyles. And it railed against the sort of... Um, Uh, middle-aged men who I felt had co-opted the environmental movement, who wore socks with their sandals, who I didn't think were very cool and um, who were too purist. And of course, nobody would publish this book except for some lovely uh, publishers in Dartington who had beards and wore socks and sandals. (laughs) The very people that you were railing against. Exactly. But we got there in the end. It's interesting because today... You know, you could think that you're absolutely bang on. You know, the world has come around and caught up with Lucy Siegel, perhaps. I know, it's really weird. <laughs> and it's, it's very strange because plastics, for example, which has become a massive issue, mm. especially since uh, Blue Planet 2 and David Attenborough, you know, we all respond to David Attenborough's voice. Since he gave us sort of issued a directive about plastics, it has become kind of on the money. And it's something that I've been following for at least a decade. So yeah, it's a very nice position to be in right now. Good. Well, I'm really glad you're here to talk to <laughs> us about it. I want to talk to you a little bit about the the, the bigger picture, the biggest picture, perhaps. Yeah. Um, we've got these, we've got this 2020 target um, mm. for trying to reduce, if you like, the increase. We've got, we've, uh, we, let me try and put that a, a little bit better. We want to reduce the Actually, you tell you, you explain to me. Talking exp- about, I'm, I'm talking, talking about, about the twenty. Yeah, I'm talking about carbon. So, yeah. looking at the big picture, mm-hmm. tell me about those 2020 targets on carbon, and just try and I'm trying to put into context what our biggest challenge is, really. Well, the challenges are huge, obviously. So, the Paris Treaty commits us to uh, decarbonising our economy because we need to stop pumping. CO2, which is the most prevalent greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere. I mean, it's a very abstract notion, but we all know a lot about it at this point. We've heard about it, you know, uh, ad infinitum. Um, And we have these goals, we have this architecture. And from that, we have different targets to to meet. So 2020 is an extremely important one. You know, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be quite hard to hit that target at at the moment, um, unless we take very drastic action. So we have these targets that we need to meet. And our objective is that we want to stay between, we want to stay, limit global warming to one and a half degrees above 1990, the baseline. Yeah. Um, That is now looking really, really hard to do. We've set ourselves these targets. 
And we've done that, obviously, because we realise the damage that a warmer yeah. world can do. Is it possible to quantify what happens if we don't meet that target in 2020? Well, it's unthinkable, really. I mean, it's absolutely catastrophic. It's very hard to contemplate what that means. I mean, there is a lot, there is, you know, there is, um, there is a degree of, um, I'll put that, I'll say that again. So there, there's, there's lots of different ideas about how likely, likely we are to meet the 1.5 warming target. Mm -hmm. And some people, more realistically, some scientists would say we should just aim for two degrees. Over two degrees, we're in real trouble. And of course, it is the low-lying region. You know, if I was living in the Philippines right now, I would be very, very invested in the UK meeting its 2020 obligations. So really, we're talking about rising sea levels. I mean, we're actually going to be able to see quantifiable differences. Yes, and we're seeing them already. We're seeing them in terms of, you know, you put more energy into the weather system, you get more energetic weather. So you get more cyclones. You get We're starting to link weather patterns to... Uh, what is happening in the atmosphere. Uh, we get into this very, very serious situation. We have 30 years of earth science at this point. So we've been able to do increasingly good modelling mm -hmm. of what happens to the earth at certain points. But we are in uncharted territory. That's really important to realise that. And we have feedback loops. So once the earth, once different elements of the earth, the different elements that sustain our lives, whether it be water, atmospheric gases, all the different things that make this planet habitable, once they tip over, they go into a different realm, but we have absolutely no understanding of what happens. So it, it, it's very frightening and apocalyptic on one level. Mm -hmm. However, I would say that we do have some very, very good modelling. Um, so there is an organisation in Sweden, for example, which I'm slightly obsessed by, uh, called the Stockholm Resilience Institute. And it's run by a scientist called Johan Rockström, um, who has done a lot of very, very good work on climate science. And what they've effectively done is take 30 years of Earth science and make it into a map, a plan for the world, and map out what resources we have left, where we need to be really, really careful, which is pretty much everywhere, mm -hmm. where we're already in a danger zone, and create a sort of safe operating space for humanity. You know, it's incredibly advanced planning and advanced science. And if only policy makers would listen to it, we'd be doing much, much better. Let's talk a little bit about policymakers, because here in yeah. the UK, you know, we, we have seen at times a political will to adopt cleaner mm. energy policies. Uh, Theresa May recently laid out a 25-year green plan. Mm. What, are, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, is enough being done here? And is there, in your opinion, the kind of political will to really make this work and make sure that we meet those targets? I think that the environment plan that was laid out by Theresa May was a very important point. Mm -hmm. That was the first time, by the way, a British Prime Minister had spoken about the environment in that depth in the House of Commons for 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that shows you how neglected this so subject So Tony Blair was the last person, was he? Yes. He really got, him, got under the skin yes. of this problem. Yeah, at one yeah. point. Mm -hmm. I know, <laughs> so absolutely. This, so this is the issue. It becomes uh, a kind of uh, 
talismanic subject for a while and then of course other things overtake yeah. so for example i would say that on certain issues we were making really good process the progress in 2005 2006 and then of course the recession put the kibosh on everything yes. and the message really was we do not have the resources to care about environmental issues which is so bonkers i can't even begin to deconstruct that um short-term political cycles as we all know uh, do not bode well when we are talking about geological epochs. So there's a problem about how we translate what's happening in earth science to policy. It's a very, very complicated thing. Do we mean it this time? Well, I think that we have um, a lot of goals. I think that we have increasing amount of um, pressure moving in the right direction. And I think that the the, the shift has started to happen if you look at something like renewable energy, where we have a real issue in this country because we have a very fragmented energy generation policy. We have money going into nuclear, investment going into nuclear. We have a ban on subsidies for onshore wind, even though every energy agency will tell you that is the cheapest and best way to increase capacity. So we're sort of on one hand saying go and the other hand saying stop, uh, which is a very mixed message for markets. Um, so I think we have to refer to what's happening internationally. So Bill McKibben a few years ago wrote a seminal piece for Rolling Stone magazine about climate change and carbon, which is not their natural territory, Indeed. obviously. And he explained a concept of the carbon bubble. So all of those big institutions invested in carbon. As we bring in uh, things like the Paris Accord, um, these assets become stranded because you're stuck with them, because we can't, you can't sell them, coal is dumb, because we, we can't use coal and meet our climate change obligations. So they become stranded. And it was really um, a formal uh, bringing together of the divestment uh, activist community, where big institutions, especially in the US universities, and we've seen it here in the UK as well, start to pull their money, their investments out of fossil fuels and put them into renewable. And that's been enormously successful. McKibben makes the point that he started out as an activist, but he was actually on the money from an investment point of view, because those who followed his advice, who was sharp enough to follow his advice five years ago, mm. have really cleaned up. And what we've seen is that policymakers are behind some of the the investment community. That's interesting. Yeah. Tell me about Trump's stance, because oh. does Donald Trump <laughs> make a difference? I mean, we, we saw, obviously, in the campaign that he talked a lot about fossil mm. fuels, a lot about coal, about coal miners, about mm. the return of blue-collar workers and blue-collar jobs. Does it make an actual difference? Does it make a practical difference to those targets that we're trying to meet? Apparently not. I think that the architecture of the Paris Agreement is robust enough that it seems to be able to withstand at least one term in office from Trump. Whether it can withstand two is a different point entirely. I think it's really, really sad for the reputation of the USA that there is now only one non-signatory. When we started the Paris Treatment, there were two non-signatories. Nicaragua, because they were already so far ahead of the goals because they've uh, renewable energy is their thing, so they didn't see why they would sign up. They've since signed up just to support the agreement. And the other one was Syria, for obvious reasons. Syria is now a signatory and the USA is not. So I think there's a terrible, um, and I so feel for my you know, colleagues who work for the Environmental Protection Agency and all those things that are being rolled back under this administration. It's shocking, um, but you cannot, what, what fundamentally has happened is 
that you can't argue with the logic of capitalism, really. And if you're seeing this huge divestment into renewables, even Saudi Arabia is planning to spend $7 billion over the next few months on seven solar farms and a massive wind farm. You know, the Saudis, are, who are notoriously <laughs> yes, have oil running yeah. through their veins, are shifting to renewables. So I think Trump uh, and the uh, co-brothers and all that fossil fuel system around them is unfortunate, but it is flying in the face of what all the signs are telling us. That's fascinating. We'll certainly return to that a little bit later, but I wanted to move now. I wanted to talk to you about plastics. Yes. Your forthcoming book, which uh, is out in July, is called Turning the Tide on Plastic, How Humanity and You Can Make Our Globe Clean. Now, I wanted to ask you just about the scale of the problem first. Mm. Um, Just a few years ago, we, not you, but we, the, I'm sure li- I'm speaking for a lot of <laughs> listeners here as well, knew very little about plastics. And actually, the idea of drinking from a single-use water bottle and then throwing it in the bin yes. is not something that appalled us. Now I feel like that is a crime. Do it you? really, Yeah, it really upsets me and upsets yeah. me when I see other people doing it. Yeah. It's been a huge shift for a lot of people yeah. in a very short period of time. Mm. But just paint a picture for us about the dangers that plastic is, is creating in the world at the moment. Well, first of all, the biggest problem for me is that we are using as disposable a material that core nature, the thing that we kind of prized about it in the first place was that it's virtually indestructible. Mm-hmm. How would that ever make any sense? So in the last year, we've had some kind of amazing research come through. And one of the research papers from the University of California has quantified the amount of plastic we've used since it became uh, a consumer product, say the 1950s. So that's yeah. 8.3 billion tonnes of plastic. 79% of that is still with us in some format, either in landfills or as environmental um, pollution. So 79% of all the plastics that have been used since plastic was created yeah. and used as a consumer product yeah. are still available, are still, are still here. Yeah, in our, still and the, the, the rest of it has been recycled, is that right? A That's small the idea. percentage has been mm. recycled, wow. a very small percentage. And um, then um, some has been incinerated, mm-hmm. which is really the only way of getting... Uh, getting rid of it at this point. And that, of course, produces other pollution and other problems. And as my granddad would have said, as he was a great campaigner on this back in the day, it's not a good use of oil to put it into a product that's used for a bag of crisps. I mean, how long does it take someone to eat a bag of crisps? I don't know, a few minutes. And then it's here for, you know, 500 years. So you're not saying that all plastics are bad that the and every use of plastic is bad is that right i mean is no, it is it's single use plastics that are the real problem do you they're think? the ones that i really have a problem with mm-hmm. plastic is um is a, a very clever material and when it was invented back in the uh, 1860s in hackney where the first plastic first sort of modern day plastic was created wow. in dalston just to get precise mm-hmm. um it was you know it was kind of amazing because it was the first time that we hadn't dug something out of the ground. 
So we'd yeah. created. We're creating it from sci- from science. Mm-hmm. And polymer science is a kind of amazing thing. It's also really important in medicine, for example, in hygiene, you know, for hygiene, especially in a clinical environment. It's used in cars, lightweight cars. I mean, you know, we and that's given us huge savings, ironically, on on, on petrol. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there are applications where we are now so dependent on it that it seems to me that it would be foolish to say no plastic ever you can't do that but what we can do is stop the flow into our everyday lives and it's really that product those products those lifestyle products which are creating the problem and the biggest problem is the fact that they end up in our waterways and our oceans is that right that's one of the problems Mm. so um if we look at the marine environment so i came across this many years ago um there is a um a scientist professor richard thompson at the university of plymouth who has been looking at this issue for years and years and years. So we knew a long time ago, because they were discovered in the 1970s, 1980s, that there were these huge gyres of plastic in the Pacific Ocean, Mm. where the plastic was being brought together in a vortex because it's very lightweight and very durable. If you wanted to make something that's going to travel long distances in an ocean and be around for hundreds or thousands of years, make it from plastic. So these toothbrushes, trainers, rubber ducks that have fallen off the back of container ships, pieces of Lego very famously do huge kind of circuits of the oceans through gyres and through currents and move by wind and rain. And they become, um, uh, their form starts to degrade but never goes away completely. Mm. So we, we were kind of like, these gyres had kind of gone into mythology and pretty much any sort of adventurer who was working for Nat Geo would go off on an expedition to photograph their gyres and then return sheepishly when they never didn't really find them. Um, But we kind of knew they were out there. Richard Thompson at Plymouth University looked at all these figures and then he looked at the figures of production and he said very simply, hang on a minute, where's all the rest of it? And he, over a long period of time, went out into the Plymouth estuary and sieved the water to find microscopic bits of fragments uh, fragments of plastic. Because what happens to plastic is it doesn't degrade, but it gets smaller. And small problems sound like they're easy to solve. With plastic, that is not the case. They are worse. So microplastics are really the ultimate plastic scourge. And we now know... Wherever we've looked for them, we've found them. We've found them in the ice core. We've found them in the seabed. We know that a lot of plastic, only about 6%, stays on the surface. And the rest um, is is sort of suspended in what, what we sort of call a toxic soup beneath the water. And this is obviously where wildlife feeds. And if you are, if you are, this is a slightly odd uh, suggestion, if you are a sperm whale with four stomachs, that is where you would be looking to fill up your stomachs. And, you know, we've seen the terrible um, sight in Blue Planet 2 Mm. of the whale ingesting that big plastic bucket. We also don't really know how much microplastics those kind of animals are ingesting. What effect did Blue Planet 2 and the coverage have on the whole plastics debate? It seems to me, um, as a layperson here, Mm. that actually it did... It, it perhaps there was a lot of knowledge out there before, but it crystallized something. Yeah. It pushed us over the edge. Mm. It turned it. It was almost the Me Too moment yeah. for plastics. Yeah, I think I think that's really um, really true. Uh, I think it's really interesting. We've I've spoken we've spoken to the producers of Blue Planet Two when we were putting together our 
a plastic special on BBC. Mm-hmm. And um, James Honeybourne, who's the ex- executive producer, said something really interesting. He said, we did not, we're not a campaigning organisation. Yes. We don't make campaigning films. We go out to show the glory of the ocean and how amazing it is. So it actually sort of breaks our hearts when we have to show what's happening. But we couldn't, in all good consciousness, go to these places, film, be removing the plastic the whole time, trying to get the lens clean and not tell that story. So I think a lot of people have gone through a similar process. You're made aware and then you have to be an activist, whether you like it or not, because it's not something that you can stand by and passively watch happen. You have to be part of the solution rather than the problem. So I think it tipped, I think it tipped that flick that switch in our heads. Mm-hmm. And I think with all the other stuff that had gone on underneath, I think it brought all that together. So let's talk a little bit about how we all can help solve the problem. Yeah. Does recycling help? Is it worth it? Should we should we be washing out our yogurt pots and and very diligently doing all that stuff in our home? Yes. You must not stop recycling. And this has been one of the big fears for me by making films and delving a little bit deeper into the recycling process, uncovering the many flaws in the recycling process and the inconsistencies, my big fear has been that people will stop recycling. If you put something in the right bin at the right time, i.e. when it's going to be collected, and you've washed it out, which is just more pleasant for everybody, frankly, um, and you put it in the right bin, all of that stuff, it is more likely to be recycled. And I honestly think people who work in recycling are heroes. They really are. Like, I've spent so much time in recycling facilities over the last few months that I've been given a little card with a drawing of a rat on it so that if I get some sort of weird illness, I can just hand this over to my GP who is a shorthand <laughs> for them to know that I've been in contact with rats. The truth about what happens to our waste is really, you know, really gruelling, really hard work. And people who work in recycling do a brilliant job with limited resources. I think we like to believe that there are no people working in recycling, that it just kind of robots yeah. <laughs> pick it all apart or something. And that whatever I put in my bins is miraculously yeah. gets recycled yeah. and there isn't yeah. anyone actually there. That's not yeah. the case, is it? Well, I do think with recycling, we're not in Kansas anymore. Mm. Like the whole debate has shown people like, oh my God. I went with a family who I've been working with, the Proud family in, in Manchester, and we followed their recycling mm-hmm. to the local recycling centre, which is a, a MRF, an MRF, which is a materials recovery facility there's also perfs which are plastics recovery facilities but not very many of them and wayne proud the dad of the family he spends 20 to 25 minutes every night going through the recycling resorting it if the girls would put it in the wrong bin oh i know that feeling yes (laughs) yeah every house has their recycler and he was really really put out because he saw at the recycling that a lot of the stuff that's collected uh tubs trays yogurt pots those kind of things they were not being recycled they Mm. were being sent for energy recovery or incineration where there is a little bit of payback in in energy terms Mm. and that was being dictated by the facilities that were available and the market so the thing that they everybody is interested in clear plastic bottles made of pet pet which is easy to sell 
the other stuff is really, really hard at the moment because China has closed. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about yes. this because I think a lot of people will have heard somewhere in the back of their minds, they'll think, but why am I recycling? Because doesn't all that stuff, it was supposed to go to China and now yeah. China doesn't want it anymore. Yeah. So is it going to landfill? Just yeah. talk us through that because I think it is confusing for people. And as you say, the danger is you just think, oh, for goodness sake, yeah. it's too complicated. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, don't do that. Um, right, well, landfill, it, it, things are not going to landfill. We do not have landfill space. We cannot start backtracking and sending things to landfill and nobody wants that. Energy recovery is now a big part of the story. So um, increasingly, and it's better than landfill because... But China's not taking our waste anymore, is that right? China stopped taking... China is is being very specific about the waste it takes. It wants only very high-grade waste. And because over the years our levels of recycling have fallen... And yeah, that's quite shocking, isn't it? They, they've fallen shocking. since 2012, I think, isn't it? They, they have. And we have lowered our ambition behind the scenes. We've been tweaking those recycling levels and just just lowering them a fraction. And that was to do with lobbying from industry. That was to do with lack of investment. All of those things happen behind the scenes. We're also, um, our household recycling, we've stalled. We were going up and up and up and up. Now we stalled. And it's more contaminated than it used to be. And there's various different reasons for that. So we knew the China ban was coming. And what really annoyed me was that we didn't do anything about it. So we're faced with a China ban and a plastic pandemic at the same time. So we have no other um, course of action except to get on and solve this in some format. Now, I think it would be naive of me to suggest that because China shut its doors that we're no longer exporting our plastic waste. It will be going to other countries, um, uh, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, or lots of different countries. And they do not, frankly, have the re- uh, infrastructure to deal with all our empties. So there's one very clear thing that we can do, and that is to um, stop the flow coming into our own lives and Increasingly, we use very complex uh, products which can't be recycled anyway uh, without a great deal of effort and money, which is just obviously not there. Um, And we need to be much more circumspect about the stuff that we do. Recycling is really important. Be the best recycler that you can. But we need a different strategy, which is what I've tried to provide in my book. We are going to come back and talk to you about that later on because I really want to know what our solutions might be. But for now, I would like to move on, actually, and talk to you a little bit about fashion. Yes. Um, You also wrote a book called To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? So you've written extensively about how our love of fashion and our love of really cheap fashion and disposable fashion is having an impact on the environment. Can I just ask you, is it always the case that if you buy something that's really cheap, it cannot have been ethically sourced? And in fact, you will be doing damage to somebody or or to the planet. Unless it's from a charity shop, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I watch TV and there's different um, brands that come up and they have like whole dresses, sundresses, two ninety nine, and I'm just absolutely in horror. It doesn't mean, though, that because you buy something that's really expensive that that hasn't had an impact on the planet. The whole system needs uh, a complete overhaul because we are producing over 100 billion new garments a year now. That's a lot of clothes. Wow. Even if we got changed like four times a day, I think we would struggle to get through that. At the same time, we have this situation where people only wear a third of their wardrobe. 
Um, we are being pressured into consuming at volume without thinking about it properly. We don't have space to store it. So there's lots of opportunities to get in there and tweak the system and our levels of consumption and the reasons why we buy. Because at the moment, it's not a very happy scenario. Not only we're having this huge destructive impact on the planet, but increasingly I'm hearing from people that they are really dissatisfied with their debt levels. Uh, the, there's been a rise in, um, uh, you can really chart the growth of fast fashion to the growth of um, uh, credit card use and store card use. Um, online shopping, where people have, have almost a trigger impulse through shopping apps to buy. And a lot of people are being made really, really unhappy uh, by this. So I think we're in a real mess at the moment. And the design community as well, designers are finding it very hard to sell anything because we have, we're pumping out so much stuff into the world. So it's interesting, we've got the ability to buy in ways that we yeah. never dreamt yeah. of before because we can buy from absolutely an endless number of shops, and even if we live in a remote part of the country, a remote part of the world, yeah. because yeah. we can buy online. Yeah. Um, we can buy products that are cheaper than ever and yet it's actually not making us happy yeah i mean you know people have written extensively about affluenza mm. the, the idea that you can have too much i think when it comes to fashion that's so so true and because we're disconnected to the narrative of the clothing you know most pieces that you value and there's been some research there's a a, a great um uh psychologist carolyn mayer professor carolyn mayer who works in the fashion industry in the uk and she's done a lot of research about why people keep a garment and what stories they attach to it and one of the garments that she has found that people have the most um reverence for within their own collection are lucky pants <laughs> so the idea that people have pulling pants uh -huh. or the knickers that they wear when they get the job of their dreams or whatever it is, that's something that has real resonance because that is a piece of clothing. It means something some, to it them. It means something to you. Mm. So, she, you know, she always says that if we could just transfer the idea of lucky pants to, you know, a lucky blazer, yeah. <laughs> not quite the same. But we have to attach a narrative to the stuff that we buy and we own because otherwise we're consuming in a void and that is when we get into a real dangerous situation. In terms of the uh, the, the damage that it does to the world yeah. of all of these clothes, it seems to me to be two separate things. One, are the workers themselves. And very yeah. often, no matter, you know, we've, we've heard these stories so many times before about the, uh, the Cambodian trainer factory mm -hmm. um, and the damage that that's doing because you've got very young people working there who should be at school. They're working in terrible conditions, you know, We've heard of these stories an awful lot. And of course, there was that horrific incident in Bangladesh in the Rana Plaza mm -hmm. um, when there was a fire which killed uh, It was actually women, a collapse of a building. A collapse of a building, sorry. Mm -hmm. So when, when, the, when that building collapsed, that should really have changed everything. Mm -hmm. Did it have much of an impact on the fashion industry? Well, Rana Plaza, 23rd of April, and five years ago, we've just had the fifth anniversary. That should have absolutely put a moratorium on the system of production for fast fashion as far as I'm concerned. We had warned about it for a long time. It was entirely preventable and it was entirely predictable. So 1,134 people, mainly young women working in the garment industry, lost their lives in that collapse of that factory. It was a mixed-use building in Savar in Dhaka. So there were banks in there, there were retailers in there. 
they didn't die, those workers, because the crack that had appeared on the wall the day before meant that they had not been forced to go into work. They'd been sent home. Fashion is always a different case, always pleads a special case. We've got too many orders. This has to be out. We're always under incredible pressure of time and people are very fearful about losing contracts. The workers were forced to go back into an unsafe building and just a few hours later they were killed. It's the greatest industrial accident ever on our watch and yet it didn't really uh, put a dent in the um, profits of fast fashion brands. In fact there was no correlation between the disaster and profits for that year. Profits rose. Reputationally I think that most of the brands managed to style their way out of it And it didn't really change much as far as I'm concerned. So there were, you know, there's there's been a lot of technical discussion in the aftermath about how to improve factory safety, which was very welcome and incredibly necessary. But it has taken five years to get to a point when I think last count, 80% of the factories slated for inspection were finally inspected after, after um, after those years. And really, we still really struggle with stuff like living wage. So this year, I've worked with a team of lawyers across the world, and we have compiled a report on living wage in the garment industry. And we found that, that, that well, pretty much nobody has paid it. Right. It's an enshrined human right, um, which was established by the Treaty of Versailles 100 years ago. And yet, most companies are getting away with not paying living wage. Lucy, it strikes me that, you know, we, the end consumers, are in a very real way responsible for this, because if we weren't buying the products, this wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. What are the guidelines that you would give to to our listeners who are listening to this and thinking, oh, I don't want to be a part of that cycle? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a price that they should look for that a garment would you know, would carry? Should it be, if you think, well, if they we're paying over that, is that any better? Or... Could you be actually funding this industry even though you're paying, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of pounds even for an expensive garment? What can we do as the end users to try and stop this happening? It is quite difficult as an end user. A lot of people say to me, even in the aftermath of Rana Plaza, one of the most common questions I had was, after a week or two, okay, could you give me a list of Mm. brands where it's okay for me to (laughs) shop from? Yeah. And although I admire, <laughs> I you know, I admire the effort of people contacting me, it's not about them and that's not really going to fix it. And we have to say that all brands that were within this system could have been producing at Rana Plaza. A lot of them don't know where they're producing because the supply chain is so circuitous, etc. So it's really hard to say this is the brand to shop at, this is the price point. What we can say is that there are a number of brands who have emerged where they take social justice and environmental issues extremely seriously and they're known as ethical brands. Um, And they are growing in the marketplace, but they're still very niche. But they have different accreditation. They have something called the Fairwear label. Um, They um, specifically make sure that they are paying workers in their factories uh, a living wage. All of those things are really important and you find those by researching and asking the company direct. 
Um, but they are becoming Patagonia, for example, a sportswear brand, which people are very, very um, familiar with these days. They have done incredible work in terms of fibre and production, all that kind of stuff. Nudie jeans. There's lots of different labels. What people tend to want is the exact product that fast fashion could have given them but in like hemp or something with a clean record. It doesn't exist. It's about shifting your focus. It's about buying less, buying better, buying from the, be- the, the right brands and investing in pieces with a story um, where that company has properly understood where that product is being made. For me, that rules out fast fashion brands or most of them. I know that's a really, really hard thing for people to hear because ultimately what they really want to do is balance their consumerism and their habits with being good. And there are fast fashion brands that are promising they can do that. I just don't believe that they are. So I think you have to, if you don't like something and you don't like what they're doing, you have to forswear it and you have to know who your enemy is. And I think this has all got very, very murky and people think they can do this, that and the other. Um, But I do think you can start by making sure that even if you buy fast fashion, that it's going to stay in your wardrobe. Because the biggest insult for me is when it's worn once and slung in the bin, creating a waste problem as well as everything else. So I have a 30 wears rule. If you see something on a hanger and you feel attracted to it, if you can't commit there and then to wearing it 30 times, then you can't have it. Lucy, that's a great (laughs) idea. Thank you for that. That's a tip to take away, actually, isn't it? I'd like to move on to talk a little bit about... um, about within fashion um, about different uh, types of materials. Yes. Um, We have such a disposable attitude Mm. to fashion. Um, And I think that many of us are actually unaware of what all these very cheap products that are available on the high street are actually made from and how damaging that is to the environment because it's not simply issues over the ethics of buying products that mean that workers are very badly paid and in some cases their lives are put at risk because of the the dangers of working in these uh, in in these factories but also the materials are really costing the earth aren't they um cotton is the most environmentally damaging fiber is that right Well, it just uses so much water. I mean, it's so thirsty. We've got um, a really incredible, awful, visceral um, uh, example of cotton production in the Aral Sea, which used to be which used to be the world's biggest inland sea, quite an incredible body of water between Uzbekistan and that kind of area. And because of cotton production and irrigation for cotton farms. It is now, there's no longer any water in it. So if you look at pictures of the Aral Sea, there's just rusted up boats. And I mean, there's no, there's nothing there. And it's extraordinary. And that is all down to irrigation for cotton production. So if you buy a pair of jeans, for example, can yeah. you quantify how much water that Oh, it can takes? be up to like 70,000 litres to make a pair of jeans. Wow. The denim industry is getting better and better and better. And again, this comes back to where you source fibre from and how, you know, if you're buying a pair of jeans, you really should be asking questions of the brand. Really, you should ask them who supplies your your denim yarn and how much water was used. Because there are, there have people who are paying extra for denim yarn that comes from uh, cotton fields where they haven't used so much water mm. or they've been very kind of um, innovative about water use. 
they are making a difference. Wow. So you can, you can, like, you know, sometimes you can by changing your, consu- your consumption, you can make a difference to these things. But if you're buying cotton, you don't know where it's from, it's just been bought on the world market, it's been traded, you know, it is going to have had a huge, huge footprint. And again, this comes back to the fact that if you're wearing it once and buying another T-shirt next week, your water footprint, your personal water footprint is verging on the out of control. I mean, you know, you're using up your entire, the entire bit of water that you are really should be taking for an entire year on one T-shirt. I mean, you're going to... It's, it's, it's bad. And the other thing, of course, about about fabrics that we're beginning to get our heads around yeah. is the idea that a lot of them have got microfibers that are plastic in them. So we yeah. are actually putting more plastic in the ocean every time we wash them. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the moment, when you do recycle um, uh, bottles, for example, that's turned into... Uh, a flake, which is then sold into different industries. And a lot of it goes into polyester. So a lot of our recycles actually recycle into plastic fibre. And then when you think, when you wash that, it's been discovered, there was an Australian scientist, Mark Brown, who started doing this research over a decade ago and discovered that when you wash synthetic fibres in in a normal laundry cycle, uh, they shed little tiny fragments, microfibers, that then can't be caught by the filter and then eventually wash out to sea. And these things are, like talk about indestructible, these things are around for 2,000 years, we reckon. Um, They're extremely small and the worry is, of course, that they start to be ingested by Mm. zooplankton, gets into the food chain, all of that kind of stuff. And they're very, very persistent. I think that I'm right in saying that they've discovered... Uh, that you can get 255,000 of these fibres from one wash. So it's a real problem. The state of California is flirting with a label on clothing products that are over 50% synthetics, which will tell you like a sort of warning sign. And what you're supposed to do as a consumer with those is hand wash them. Now, this has always been a thing for me with sportswear because quite often you buy um, sport, you know, sportswear, which is very synthetic. Mm-hmm. And it always used to annoy me when you used to look at the wash label, it said hand wash. Who hand washes their sports kit? But we may all have to start doing that because of the synthetic fibre problem. That's so interesting. Tell me about the innovations that are happening in the world of fashion because there must be, and I know that people are looking at materials that will help solve these problems. Yes. So a lot of the stuff that we're looking at is to try and displace, like take the strain off cotton, Mm -hmm. take the strain off. So leather production, for example, has been shown to be driving destruction of the Amazon rainforest biome. Um, And fashion's footprint in all of these areas is huge because we use a lot of resources for a lot of garments. So the the clever smart play is to move on to new fibres which don't have those footprints. And there's some incredibly interesting innovations out there. So Bolt Threads, for example, is a company that's using spider silk, that's using all sorts of different um, constructed materials. Um, um, Stella McCartney Mm -hmm. is one brand that's worked heavily with with Bolt Threads. And they're bringing to market some very interesting fibres. We also have Modern Meadows, which is based in New York. The creative director, Suzanne Lee, is actually a, a British designer. And they are doing something which I'm completely mesmerised by. They are producing leather in vitro. So there's no livestock here because livestock have a very heavy carbon footprint or methane Mm. footprint, as Mm. we all know. Mm. Um, And they thought, well, wouldn't the idea be to create 
the leather product without using a cow at all. So they've isolated the collagen and they are creating leather. I think they've just opened their first warehouse. So the idea that you could have some of these materials without harming any animals, mm. I mean, that's a whole different... It's extraordinary. Paradigm, isn't it? In a way, and, and 3D printing of our own clothes is also something that could be in the future. Is that possible? Well, I have talked a lot to futurists, chemists, all sorts of people, psychologists, all involved in the fashion supply chain, all desperately searching for example uh, for answers. Mm-hmm. And the thing they get most excited about is 3D printing. So the idea that you could print. Uh, if you fancied a jacket, that you would be able to get a pattern from your favourite designer and you would be able to get printed that jacket, that top, that pair of trousers. So instead of us producing 100 billion garments a year, a lot of which end up as waste, um, end up being burned, as we've discovered recently, instead of all that waste, we would be able to commission, curate exactly what we wanted. And to take that one step further, because 3D printing at the moment uses a plastic filament, I've also found somebody who's working on a biodegradable, compostable filament. So human nature being what it is, you have your jacket that you're desperate for, it's made for you, you suddenly fall out of love with it at some point in the future, and you would be able to compost it effectively wouldn't that be the perfect solution it sounds amazing do you think that innovation and technology will get us out of this hole that we've we've dug for ourselves no no i don't think there is i don't think there's a silver bullet for a lot of the consumption problems that we that we face at the moment however i think that we are going to see massive strides forward i think what we can do is break the system which is dictating at the moment the way that we consume fashion, the pace that we consume it and the way that it is made and bringing with it a lot of attendant problems. So I would say the fast fashion system is a real, real problem. I think this, these, all these innovations, which are incredibly exciting, are going to break the stranglehold on our pockets and our imagination and our fashion culture. They're going to happen quickly. I already know of a few designers who are 3D printing in quite a credible way. You know, they have a business. They've made a business from doing that. And I think that it will give us options. It won't stop us from being the worst versions of ourselves, but it will enable us to be the best versions of ourselves, if that makes sense. It does. Lucy, thank you very much for that. I'd like to go on now to ask you about more solutions. Mm. We've talked a lot about the issues of uh, of consumption, of overconsumption in our society. It seems something that we're going to have to curb. How do we begin to slow down this cycle of buying, whether it's plastic water bottles for single use or uh, clothes that we then dispose of after only one or two wears? Well, I was asked recently to write a piece for... Uh, a mainstream magazine, a uh, women's magazine, on mindful consumption. And for me, this was a real game changer because I loved the way that it was expressing sustainable ideas about consuming more sustainably without using the word sustainability, <laughs> which is great. Um, and it really, Why do you think sustainability is just dumb? It's not a sexy word. No, it's, I agree. And also agree. people don't really understand what it means and mm-hmm. it's just, it's, 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 it comes with a load of baggage. Mm-hmm. I'd rather use mindful because, mm-hmm. you know, that's a really hot topic at the moment. And people have seen, so neurobiologists with whom I think we need to work, collaborate a lot more closely as environmentalists, by the way, with psychologists and neurobiologists, mm-hmm. 
because I think we need to really understand how, how our brains work and what triggers we respond to in order to find different ones that work. And I think they show us that things like fast fashion shopping, we are hardwired to go for that okay so we're like sitting ducks for that so it's a really big ask to suddenly go right don't do that anymore what we can do is sell something else and what is really really clear is that we were really made to in a sort of hunter gatherer kind of type way Mm. we were we're really all about getting small naturally based gifts like you know you find a handful of nuts and that's a great boost for you that are all linked to our energy. We're not, we are not made to be on this, this uh, up and down kind of roller coaster of emotion, which is what we're putting ourselves through when we consume so rapidly at this level. And that's why people it's buy things and then they feel guilty about them. And there's a whole yeah. cycle there, which is yeah, fairly unhealthy. It's a really unhealthy mm. cycle. Mm. So the way to sell this, I think, and it's, it's completely, you know, it's not a myth, it's actually mm. true, it's based on fact, is to. Try and help people have a more mindful approach, which is actually better for their mental health. And I think that's really, really important because I think we really underplay how addictive these patterns of consumerism are and, you know, that they really have a very bad effect on people and people overspend for for a starter, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a really problematic way. So one of the things I say, one of the solutions I say is to get rid of things like shopping apps on your phone immediately. Any of those trigger responses we need to be really alert to. And for me, it's about building strategies, whether it's buying groceries and getting rid of plastic, building strategies that buy you a little bit more time as a person. We're not just consumers. We're members of civil society with agency. And we can click in and we can use our power because we do have power and we do have choice, especially in our society. And we need to make that work for us rather than being enslaved by big brands, corporations, and this whole kind of churn of consume and chuck it, which I think is really devastating. What about people power. How much can that help? I'm thinking, for example, of things like plastic packaging. Many of us, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I feel very frustrated when you buy something that arrives you know, through the post, and there's acres of packaging that you didn't want to get to the one thing that you did. And it makes you feel quite guilty. You've got to, you know, you can recycle it as much as you like. But, you know, as we've already talked about, that doesn't solve the problem necessarily. Is it not possible that we could have a kind of a a Me Too hashtag for packaging that would force the companies, big companies, into having much less packaging? I mean, you talked to me earlier about how your grandfather took the plastic packaging off. Have we got to the point yet where there are are enough people who really, really want to make that change to make it happen? Yes, and I think, you know, I think activism, it's really important to make this point. Everybody is different, and some activists do not feel... Um, some people do not feel happy to go and make a big demonstration and peel off their packaging and throw it on the mm. floor on the you know and the poor till person gets flustered and blah. Some people find that really awful. Yeah. And I think we have to have lots of different sorts of activism. Mm. So if you're not a placard shouty person like me, that's absolutely fine. You can be an introverted activist mm. too. And I think that's why social media is great and I think hashtags are great. I think, you know, I think Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, they're all running campaigns where if you think something is overpackaged, you uh you should name and shame. You should take a picture 
you can link that to their programme and we can bring this all of this together. It does work. Does it force big brands into Absolutely. changing, making changes? Absolutely. A lot of people, have, and not just big brands, mm. you know, I've had celebrities say to me recently, you know, they've done big stadium tours and they have been really worried that some of their plastic merchandise is going to be like bobbing along, in the, you know, in the back of shot in some, ter- you know, in a mm-hmm. beach clean, you know, news programme or something. You know, everyone is rightly paranoid about everything you put your name on, everything you brand is now being used as physical evidence about the way that you need to change your policy. And that will only get, that will only increase. So now is a really, really good time to do this kind of stuff. We've had um, Somerset and North Devon, the ladies of Biddeford got together and did a massive unwrap of their groceries in the supermarket there. These things are happening all over the place. So you can plug into those, absolutely. But I think for everyday life, that's what I've tried to do in my book is produce a strategy Um, that we can just all do automatically every day. And one of the things that I do suggest, so we have the three R's at the moment, reduce, reuse and recycle. I don't think that's enough. So I've added loads and loads of other R's, refill, um, rethink, you know, all of these ways of reprogramming the way that we think about packaging before we get to the recycling, which should be absolutely, absolutely the end. And one of the things I say is refuse. It's absolutely fine to say, you know what, you don't have to be rude about it. You know what, I'd really rather not have that bag I'm not going to take that bag off you today. And that's the sort of dialogue that uh, people who work in shops, cafes, restaurants, they're actually getting really, really used to it. Mm. And they're not offended and they do kind of get it because a lot of the, a lot of plastic that comes into our lives, most of it is unwarranted. We didn't ask for it and we don't want it. Now, this is a massive sea change. It might not even seem like a big thing, but I assure you for years and years and years, because I've had these battles with retailers and manufacturers, Every time I said, you know what, people don't want that coconut wrapped because it comes in its own natural shell. (laughs) Yes, indeed. The coconut, that's the thing that really, really gets me. And I found one, Waitrose, on a stand, which is really, really annoying me. So I'm doing battle over that at the moment. But for years and years, they would turn around and say to me, the consumer wants it, the consumer demands it. And that has been the defence of pretty much all plastic packaging. And what we're showing post-Blue Planet, all of this dialogue that we're having, is that not only does the consumer not demand it, but they're bloody well infuriated by it. And if you don't change it, they're going to do something about it. So actually don't underestimate how much power that conversation has. Tell me about the things like microplastics in toothpaste and Mm. in exfoliators we use on Mm. our faces. Presumably those Uh, cosmetic companies could change that for something else if we were to make enough fuss about it? Well, microbeads in cosmetics, years and years ago when they started using them in exfoliators, Mm -hmm. a lot of us were very concerned about that because we could see it's ready-made microplastics. You might as well just pour them straight into the ocean, you know, because they're not going to get stopped at the water treatment plant. And their job is to go down the plug hole after they've been washed off your face. Yes, And I was told in no uncertain terms by the big cosmetics giants, the consumer wants it. Why can't you use nuts and shells Mm. like you always have done? Because the consumer wants plastics. Oh, right, okay, that's interesting, because now we find that they didn't, and within that sort of 10-year patch, Mm. we've poisoned the oceans. Um, We do have a microplastics, a microbead law, which is coming into effect completely um, by the end of this summer, which means that 
they will no longer be able to sell the toothpaste and the exfoliators. However, unfortunately, they've crept into loads of other products as well. Um, so really, I don't think the cosmetics giants are being as upfront about this as they can. And what can we do about that? we can make sure that we buy from brands that definitely don't use them. I mean, the ingredients lists on the back of those products are very hard. With my eyesight, I mm. find them really, really hard to read. And very often hard to understand, even if you can see them. Yes, exactly. Are there exactly. words we should look out for? Um, well, I think anything that says um, uh, bubbles and anything that shows some kind of miraculous activity on the front, there's often like little bubbles yes. for cleanliness yeah. and extra zing or whatever, however they express it. That to me is shorthand for microbeads. So I avoid those like the plague. And I stick to the most simple ingredients that I can find and the brands that use um, natural ingredients and are quite fanatical and obsessional about using natural ingredients. Like Lush, for example, a high street brand, especially, you know, if you've got if you've got younger kids, if you've got young teenagers, they love that brand. And they have been very, very uh, pioneering, not just on microbeads, uh, which they would never use, um, but also on packaging. So a lot of their products are, as they term it, naked so you'll get shampoo and conditioner in a bar, which comes in a reusable tin. They do a um, uh, a cheeky soap shaped as a soap dispenser. So that, you know, it, I love all that stuff. And the more cheeky and upfront a brand is about that, uh, the more I trust it. Where are we going to be in five years' time? I mean, these issues seem to have become much more mainstream in a reasonably short period of time. And the younger generation, I mean, I've got three just pre-teenage kids and their view on the environment is completely different. It is much more front and centre mm -hmm. to their world. And they see things like plastics in the ocean as a really major concern in a way that we didn't even know about it when we were growing up. Yes, and they're very concerned. And in a way, I don't want them to be that concerned. And that's part of the drive for me for change. So... You know, a lot of the plastics debate has been fueled by evidence from beach cleans. If we didn't have hundreds and thousands of people in the UK who go to our beaches, I think we've got like 2,500 public beaches, and do things like surfers against sewage, big spring beach clean, over the years, we wouldn't have the evidence to be having this conversation. You know, they have gone and picked up the evidence and we have analysed it. And we now have a situation, I was at a beach clean in Senan Cove in Cornwall um, in, in the spring, and the, the little surfers there, the grommets as they're called, they know they are not allowed to get in the water until they've picked up three pieces of plastic, which is great and they're brilliant at it and they, you know, they pick up loads more than three bits. But I think in a way that's a bit sad, isn't it? Because when I was a kid, I didn't have to pick up three pieces of plastic before I ran in the sea. I just ran in the sea. And what I really want to happen is for them just to be able to run in the sea without having to think about doing all these beach cleans. I think it's so amazing that they are so, to use an awful word, woke <laughs> about the environment because they won't make the mistakes that we made. For example, things like uh, face wipes and wipes for this that and the other yes. you know they're, they're made from plastic they're full of uh, disposable coffee cups you know I'm hopeful in five years time that those will look so ludicrous so what will go in five years time straws will be straws gone straws are almost gone yeah. right yeah and if you do need to use a straw and some people do need to use a straw yes. you know some and people with disabilities have contacted me and they're very worried that mm -hmm. you know straws are going to be removed mm -hmm. a lot of them are just being changed for paper yes. and biodegradable plastics mm -hmm. uh, biodegradable plastics are still a minefield at the moment because 
because, you know, if you put, you know, I have a friend, bless her, who years ago um, put her put her child's nappies, got biodegradable ones and, and dug them into her allotment. She's still digging those up. Uh, her child's 14. So, you know, the biodegradable stuff hasn't worked as we would have wanted it to. But there's a lot of work being done on that science. And I believe, you know, in five years' time, we are going to have... Uh, uh, either a system to collect these things. We need better infrastructure. So we're going to have better biodegradables. We're going to have better infrastructure. And we are not going to allow the big multinational companies, whether they be beauty, personal care, uh, household cleaners, we're not going to, going to allow them to dump plastic products on us, which create microbeads, which create pollution. By the way, face wipes, there are so many now lying on riverbeds in the UK that they're changing the course of the river. You know, we become a geological force through our consumer habits, and that is what needs to stop. And the fact that we have a younger generation who get the connection means that we are, you know, 50% of the way there in a way that we weren't before. But now we have to push to get to the rest of the way. Lucy, are you optimistic? I am, because um, Paul Hawkin, who's a great writer and biologist, says, you know, if you look at it, there's a lot of, it's very daunting. You know, let's not sugarcoat the issues here. This, we're in perilous times. We've really got two years to make a dent in, uh, in uh, carbon emissions, really, if we, if we are going to get to the Paris Agreement totals and deadlines. But when you look at all the problems and you look at all the energy and the people and the solutions and the innovation... You can't help but be optimistic. I also do not believe that we have the right to look at something like a coral reef and declare it dead and say we have to move on. When we see these things, when we see these signs, and they're incredibly distressing, whether we see them on TV in Blue Planet or we see, like I say, a coral reef or whatever, those are, those are not signs to say, give up, we're doomed. Those are the clearest signal you will ever get that you've got to push on, be more aggressive, and you've got to push on faster. You know, that's what those signs are there for. And that's why we're sharing them through things like Blue Planet 2. Lucy, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.